Well, with that, let's stand together. We're going to read Acts chapter 4. And uh, for those of you that are visiting with us, we have as our practice walking through God's word and letting it speak. And we happen right now to be in Acts chapter 4. Um, so this is, this is not a sermon that I chose to do today because I have a beef with someone. Uh, this is, um, I may have lots of beefs with people, but that's not why we're here. Uh, the reason we're here is because it happens to be the next passage, the next text um, in our study of the book of Acts. So let's begin reading Acts chapter 4, verses 5 and following. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that, uh, for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may, uh, it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name." So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Lord, we come now humbly to this passage, Lord, that you have revealed to us. And Lord, we want want you to, to guide us and to teach us and to show us, Lord, what it is that you want us to see. And Lord, how it would affect us and change us and, and shape us, Lord, to be more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, also to be the, the means by which your gospel is going to go forward. And so, Lord, what we, what we have not, would you give us? What we know not, would you teach us? What we are not, Lord, would you make us? And allow me as your messenger to be your mouthpiece so that you will be proclaimed and that your word, Lord, will impact the hearts of those who are listening. Um, Lord, in particular, those who are your children, but Lord, as well as those who may not know you. We ask, Lord, for your help now, your precious holy name. 
Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So far in the book of Acts, Peter has preached three times publicly. First, he preached to the crowd of Jewish pilgrims. Remember those devoted Jews who came as, a, as, a, as pilgrims to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And of course, what happened there was they, they, along with the rest of the apostles, were speaking in tongues, and they were hearing in their own language, in their own native tongue, the mighty works of God. And so they asked, what does this mean? And, and, and Peter quotes Joel 2 and Psalm 16 and Psalm 110 and emphasizes that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Then in his second sermon, and this time to the Jews who are in Jerusalem, who knew and saw the lame man who sat at the beautiful gate outside the temple, and he's now walking and leaping and praising God, their question that they're asking, we find that more kind of tied into uh, Peter's perception of the question that they're asking. That's found in chapter 3, verse 12. By what power is this lame man healed? And there he quotes Deuteronomy 28, or sorry, Deuteronomy 18 and Genesis 22, 18, along with other proofs from the Old Testament to point out that Jesus is God's servant, his suffering, resurrected, and exalted servant. Today, we come to the third public address with the Jewish rulers, the Jewish leaders, and they are aware of the lame man's healing And they're concerned. And so they ask, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now, the issue for them isn't so much that this man is healed, but the source or authority of this man's healing. It is really a question of authority. Now, you may have heard the expression before, who died and left you in charge? You may have said it sometime in some kind of a context. Well, here's the reality, friends. Jesus had died, and he had left his apostles with his full authority to go and proclaim the gospel and to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. And this is what Matthew was also reminding of us at the end of his gospel. You know what, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In other words, I'm giving you my authority to carry out my authority on this earth. So friends, it's a question of authority. So far, in this account of the healing of the lame man, Peter has emphasized that only Jesus has the power to make you whole. That's what we looked at last week. Now, as Peter speaks to the religious leaders, his emphasis is a little different. He's saying to them and to us who are reading or listening to this passage, only Jesus has the authority to make you whole. It's not just the power but who gives this person the right to be made whole? And if you notice in our text, there are a number of words that were used to describe this lame man who is now healed. Verse uh, uh, 316, we 
we, we read back before this, he is in perfect health, we find. Chapter 4, verse 9, he is healed. 4, verse 10, he is well. 4.16, this is a notable sign. Chapter 4, verse 22, what happened to this man is a sign of healing. Now let's look back at verse 9, if you would, please. And quite frankly, the ESV translation is a little unfortunate here. And I'll tell you why in just a minute. Because the word here is translated healed. But the actual word that is used in the Greek is the, Greek, is the word sozo, which means Saved. Okay. Now, I don't typically bring up language and all that kind of stuff, but here it is pretty significant. And so what's happening here with this question of authority is not so much by whose authority is this man healed, but the question is by whose authority is this man saved? Now, friends, that's an important question. Peter wants us to see that only Jesus has the authority to bring about man's salvation. And so as we come to our text, it really naturally falls into to three, um, three points, a structure having three points. There's a question, there's an answer, and there's a response. And let's jump in now, first of all, at the probing question. And we want to begin by asking ourselves the question, who is asking the question here. And we're kind of given this incredible description of the group of officials who are gathered together for this special council. They're rulers, they're elders, they're scribes. The rulers are the the, the leading members of the high priestly class, the governing elite, the chief priests and their families. We have the the elders who are the members of Jewish uh, society, the elite of Jewish society, much of them probably wealthy um, businessmen, um, landowners, leaders in Jewish society, the scribes, they were the, the specialists of the law. Uh, they were the judici- judiciary. They were often the Pharisees. And they're the ones who are teaching uh, in the temple. And they're the ones that are given the authority to interpret and to rule. So this is what is called the Sanhedrin, the gathering of these religious, and I'm going to say political elite or leaders in Israel. They are the supreme legislative, judicial, and executive body of these uh, citizens of Israel. And they made up of priests and laymen and Pharisees and Sadducees. But I also want you to notice here that uh, there's also a listing here of individuals. And it's always interesting to me. You might have these kind of like political or leaders just kind of listed in groups but there seems here to be a family that somewhere somehow has their hand in this leadership. They're kind of like the, the, the Kennedys of, of Israel at this point in time. Does that make sense? They're Caiaphas and Annas and John and Alexander. Annas was like the, the grand poopah. He was the high priest. And he's the father of the present high priest. In fact, he had five sons who ended up being high priests. Right? One of them here is Caiaphas. John, who was also likely a high priest at one other time. We're not, we don't know anything about Alexander. The point here is these are not just individuals. They're all part of a family that also is part of this leadership. Now, what should strike you is the fact that the very group that Peter and John are standing before here is the same very group that had Jesus stand in their midst. So just kind of... 
see that kind of in the context and the picture of what is going on here. Now, Annas was a big fish in the pond of Jerusalem. And you could rightly say that there was not a more powerful body of men in all of Israel at this time than the people that are present in this room, gathered together for this interrogation. This would be like two faithful pastors summoned to the Senate for a hearing and having all these senators uh, sitting around ready to ask questions. But this would be far greater than even that. So this is who is there. Next, the question is, where is the question, uh, where is the question being asked? And of course, the text says in Jerusalem. But if we know anything about history, the Sanhedrin met either in the temple or very near the temple because the temple was the heart of Israel's religious system. And one of the things that we need to remember here is that the temple was the place for presence, where God was present with his people. It was the place where you sought pardon, right? where God granted pardon through all the various sacrifices that were accomplished at the table. It was the place for God's revelation, where his law and his word was taught. It was also the place where God would rule. He would rule from his temple, and those who had been given authority to teach and to rule were present as leaders in the temple. So as we get that picture here, the historians describe the Sanhedrin gathered together around the temple, near the temple, but certainly representing all that the temple represents. And they would typically gather either in a semicircle or completely encircling the people. And here are Peter and John, we're told in the scripture here, in their midst. Now, this must have been pretty intimidating to have all these people gathered together and you are there now being interrogated. And if you look back at I think it's verse four and five, the reason that they're there is because they were teaching and they were proclaiming the resurrection in Jesus name. Now, here they are not inquiring of them. That's a kind of a soft word. It was this interrogation that was going on here. So what is the question? What is the heart of the matter here? Well, the question here in verse 7 is, by what power or by what name did you do this? And as mentioned before, it wasn't that the religious leaders didn't know or hadn't heard about the healing of the lame man. The question is, where did this power to heal come from? By whose authority was this done? And for them, there's only two options. Option one is this healing came from God, the almighty creator. Option two is that his healing came from the devil, Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And so since they, the Sanhedrin, were the true rulers and true guardians of God and were the authorities, then certainly there's only one option left. It can't be God. It has to be a demonic thing. So, we didn't give you the authority, therefore, who did? So do you see what's happening here? And you've got to step back and look at what's happening here from the beginning of the book of Acts, even as things are unfolding now. This is a Berlin Wall moment that has taken place, where by God's design, a new day has dawned on the people of Jerusalem, where the authority and power, which was in the past, placed 
on the temple is now being transitioned over to one king, one ruler whose name is Jesus Christ. He will be the one who will always be present. He will be the one who provides eternal pardon. He is the one who was revealing himself to mankind. He is the one who's now coming to rule. There's a new regime. There's a new day. Something is being done away with, and Christ is now coming in. It's as if Peter and John are about to say to this puffed-up religious leadership, you can just imagine them all coming in, like, oh, this meeting, these people are doing all this stuff out there, you know, and their, their feathers are all out there because we're making this show. And there's these two guys. Thank you for the audience participation there. It's as if they're saying, Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate, tear down this wall. See, what Luke is showing us in the events here is that there is a change taking place, not just in the gospel going forward, but there's a change taking place in the structure of how God is working with his people. The temple had become a place distorted of God's truth. And what it promised was not being met. It didn't carry out the promise. And then Jesus comes and he now fulfills what the temple was not fulfilling and not accomplishing. There's a change in administration. There's a change in what God is doing here. And this is all part of God's divine plan. So what is the question? It's a question of authority. Who has the authority? By whose authority? Now, Peter and John were told, give an answer here. The question then has been asked, what would Peter and John do? What would they say? Now, can you imagine yourself being in that context, being under so much pressure and feeling the intimidation of all these eyes looking on you, waiting for you to respond? And remember, back in verses 1 through 4, we're told that they are greatly annoyed at what is taking place. Now, you would be annoyed too if you just spent all your time making sure this rabble-rouser by the name of Jesus of Nazareth needed to be kind of gotten rid of, and you orchestrated all these things to get rid of him, finally to get him crucified, you know, kind of like washing your hands of it. Now we can move on. We've maintained control. We are the rulers here. He's gone. And now these upstarts, these followers of Jesus, now are beginning to, to preach and teach these things about a resurrection, but connected now to this healing of this lame man. Remember last week we talked about how the healing was a picture for what Peter and John were going to say about Jesus Christ. And you'll find that uh, quite often in the book of Acts. You see that in the Gospels. You certainly will see it here. Notice, however, how Peter Responds. He's been in jail overnight simply for preaching and proclaiming the resurrection. And he responds now to these men gathered with great respect. He says, rulers of the people and elders. Now, how could Peter be so calm and respectful after being treated so unjustly? Well, the text is very, very clear. Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one 
who is giving the power and guiding him to speak and to represent Christ in such a way that will bring glory to God. And friends, there is a lesson for us here, isn't there? As Americans, it doesn't take us long, even though we're Christians, to act all revolutionary when we believe that our inalienable rights have been threatened. Oh, they can't do that to us. Oh, we're not going to let, we're going to protest. We're going to go out there. We're going to show them. And we forget about the fact that there's one who's greater. There's one who's ultimately in control. And our comforts, our little struggles are nothing in comparison to what God has in store for us in heaven. But our American individualism kicks in and it begins to rule and overshadow what Christ has called us to be and to do. And so as Christians, we can fall into the trap of thinking that our our Americanism gives us freedom to speak and to behave in ungodly ways. And friends, the world is watching. They're watching to find out what is really your strength, what really is your foundation, what really rules you. Now, there's a time for boldness because of God's truth, but boldness does not excuse rudeness, sinful anger, or abuse of any kind. You're not called upon by God to give others a piece of your mind. Those two things don't go together, friends. You're called upon God to give witness to Christ and his gospel. Even with all the things we've been facing the past couple of years, God has called us to respond in such a way that people would see that our hope is rooted and anchored to the one who is in control of it all. It's Christ. What often happens, though, is that people see our flesh. They see our fears. They see our panic. They see our selfish desires for comfort. And friends, it's all easier said than done, isn't it? I mean, I realize, you know, Pastor Rod, you you may be right, but boy, this is tough. I get that. God never said it was going to be easy. But we've got to continually remind ourselves that we actually may be far more American than we are Christian. What God wants us to do is to allow our Christian to rise up and permeate the American so that we can truly bring glory to God. And that might mean that we go through tough times together. So now Peter, in answer to the question about authority, says three things, but there's no mistaking something. There's no mistaking that the healing took place in Jesus' name. Jesus will now be put on display as Exhibit A, As one commentator said, you can't do sleight of hand with a paraplegic who is over 40 years old whom everyone knows. That's just the reality. That's what these guys are facing. People knew this guy. They probably knew his name. It's not recorded for us, but they probably knew his name. They probably dropped money off to him as they went into the temple. He was a fixture there. Everyone knew this man is now healed. Something radical is happening here. So who has the authority to heal or to save this man? There's three answers. Answer number one, verses 9 and 10. Jesus, the man, the one you crucified. Notice what it says. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, 
By what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus of Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. And of course, Peter's beginning by saying, look, if we want to be honest here, we're talking about something good that was done to someone who was suffering. Right? In other words, you, you want to you wanna get an answer for this? Look, there's something good. Are you happy about the fact that this man is now healed? Are you more concerned about who's behind it? But if you're asking the question, I have the answer, and I want all of you sitting around here, I can just imagine kind of saying, looking to the whole Sanhedrin and pointing his finger, I want all of you to know the answer. And I want all of Israel to know this answer. I am not afraid of the answer. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that this man stands before you. And this is the same Jesus of Nazareth that you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. And we move now from the man, that would be the lame man, to the man who is the ultimate man, that is Jesus. Now this isn't the first time that we've heard Peter say these words. He said the very same thing the day before to the Jews in Jerusalem, but now he's standing before a new group of people, the Jewish leaders, and he repeats the truth of the matter. And it's in Jesus' name that this man is healed. And this is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now just think about what he's doing. What Peter is doing is making sure that this Jesus, whom he's pointing to, is not somehow relegated to some kind of a fictional character or some, some I want to say, national idea. For in our context, that would be something like, Uncle Sam did this for you. Or you tell your kids, well, you know, Santa got you that present. Right? Or, or maybe you say, you know, you're just living out the, the American dream. These are ideas that are, that are not located in one person. What, what he's saying here is this is a particular man from a particular place that you know particularly because you crucified him. And if we're to bring back our understanding of verse 9 of this word healing, that it means to save, he's saying to this group of, of, of religious and political leaders, it is Jesus Christ of Nazareth that has the authority to save this man. And friends, this is key to understanding what is going on here. The idea of salvation speaks of everything that the temple was meant to achieve. Pardon from God, peace from God, the presence of God, the revelation from God. And this Jesus has come to take over what the temple promised but had failed to deliver for years. So it is only in Jesus Christ that we can find revelation, pardon, peace, and God's presence. Only Jesus Christ of Nazareth can bring salvation by restoring what has been dead and bringing it to life in this world. Now, you crucified him, he says. But Jesus the man, that's the first answer. The second answer now is an answer by means of quotation. Because Peter now reaches back into the scriptures, in particular Psalm 118, verse 22, which says this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now Psalm 118 was a very familiar passage of scripture for the Jews. 
They would spend time learning these particular psalms, and they would sing them on their way to the temple. And in particular, they would know what verse 22 was about. So they would learn these as children growing up. So he's, he's quoting something that these hearers completely understood. Now, the house that's being built in this kind of scenario is the temple. And Israel, made their, as they made their way up to the temple, singing songs together, they were testifying to the nations around them a couple of things. They were saying, God's king is in God's temple. And he is at the center of all God's blessings. They're saying he is the cornerstone on which God is building his eternal kingdom. Now, I'm not much of a builder. I've built a few things badly. um, And I've had to learn along the way. But in today's world and with today's technology, this idea of a cornerstone is kind of a has-been approach to how you build. Because now we have steel pylons that we bury deep into the ground and anchor things so that you can have a good foundation. But, but for centuries, buildings, large and small, were built upon a cornerstone. Now, a cornerstone was a, a key principal stone usually placed at the corner of, uh, of an edifice or some kind of a building project to guide the workers on their course. And it was usually one of the largest, most solid and the most carefully constructed of any stones of any part of the building. Because once that cornerstone was set, it was the basis then for determining every measurement in the remaining construction. Everything was aligned to it. If you didn't have a cornerstone, the measurements would be out of line. And the building would be crooked. Now notice how Peter quotes and explains the psalm. He doesn't quote it directly, but he quotes it by means of application. He says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So he's saying three things. First, he's saying Jesus is the stone. Secondly, he's saying you, the religious political leaders, are the builders who rejected Jesus. The house that you're building, it's out of line. The foundation is cracked. Everything that is being built upon it is distorted because you have rejected this stone. Third, and this stone, Jesus, has now become the cornerstone. He will be the basis of every measurement. Everything will be aligned to him. And this is a messianic promise. It's not just found in Psalm 118, but also in Isaiah 28, in particular, verses 16 through 17. Just listen. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste, and I will make justice the line and righteousness, the plumb line. You see, it's same language as there. There's this stone that's going to be the anchor. It's going to be the measurement. And of course, the, the context there are scoffing uh, Ju- Judeans who, uh, who basically are rejecting what God is being saying. He's saying, look, there, there is a cornerstone coming. He is my precious son who will provide a firm foundation for their lives if they will simply trust in him. And then, of course, in the New Testament, you're probably familiar with the fact that the Apostle Paul, speaking to the Ephesian church, says in Ephesians 2.19 and following this, 
So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members and household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So Jesus is the cornerstone, the one upon whom and from whom this new regime will be built, the one whom you must listen to and align yourself with, or your foundations will crack, your walls will crumble, your roof will fail. Of course, it's it's worth us asking right now, isn't it? Is Jesus my cornerstone? Now, certainly Scripture says he is the cornerstone, but the point here is this. Is Jesus the foundation or the cornerstone of the foundation of my life? Is he the one that measures what I think and how I behave and the choices that I make? Is he the one I run to? You see, because conversion is a total regime change. You're dead. You are following the passions of this world. But Jesus Christ has made you alive. You have a new master, a new ruler. And so the analogy is that he now is this cornerstone that is shaping and fashioning your life. Or have you allowed other things now to take residence as that cornerstone that that are the basis of your thinking? See, this is the challenge for us, isn't it? So here we have Jesus the man, Jesus the cornerstone. And of course, he's saying, you rejected him. But then he finished up by saying, Jesus the Savior. This is the answer to the question. Jesus the Savior, the one you must believe. And Peter presses this point further emphasizing that Jesus is fundamentally exclusive. Notice verse 12. And there is salvation in what? No one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And he says, there's no one else, there's no other name. So the issue here isn't so much the healing as it is this man's salvation. And the issue that Jesus, sorry, the Jews and the religious and political leadership have to deal with here is their salvation is at stake. And of course, that's that's an issue we all have to deal with, isn't it? Peter is saying, if you continue to reject Jesus, you will miss out on salvation, for there is only one way that true healing, eternal salvation can take place. Now, friends, this is not a new idea because Jesus, when he came and he's speaking to his disciples in the upper room, we know this passage very well. John 14, verses 6 and following, he says to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Friends, there's no room in Peter's words here or the words of Jesus for the modern notion of religious pluralism. And that basically means this idea that there are many ways to get to heaven. It doesn't matter what you believe specifically. You can be Muslim, you can be Mormon, you can be Catholic, you can be Hindu, you can be Buddhist or follow Confucius or you can uh, practice Taoism, Christianity or Jew. It doesn't really, really matter because they're all just different cultural ways of getting to the same place. That may sound nice, and it may be appealing to some. The problem is there is in particular one religion listed there that is very exclusive. 
And that, of course, is Christianity because Christianity is built on a confession and a reality that Jesus Christ has said, I'm the only way to the Father. You're going to get in a plane that you don't know where it's going through all these other religions, and you're going to land in an airport, but it ain't going to be heaven. There's only one way. There's only one destination. There's only one airline you can go on to get to that destination, and it's the Jesus Christ airline. Just the reality of it. And that's not popular in our pluralistic, secular age. People don't want to hear that. That's not nice. It's not kind. It's exclusive. So we must coexist together, right? But in order to believe that, you must jettison the ideas of the exclusivity of Christ, any doctrinal distinctions that are proclaimed throughout Scripture, the the reality of man's true sinful condition, and then the essential character of the gospel. What is the gospel actually doing? You have to jettison. You have to throw those out. Just cut Scripture apart and just throw it out in order to conform to that religious pluralism. But friends, it's out there, isn't it? In other words, friends, and this is where we have to be careful, we cannot settle for the statement, I believe in Jesus. Because we need to have Jesus described and defined for us. Which Jesus are you talking about? What does this Jesus look like? Well, he's a, he's a, he's a Jesus of love and mercy. I get that. You're getting there. But there's more to it than that, right? I mean, so we have to define it. We, we cannot settle for a statement, I believe in the gospel. What, what gospel are you talking about? Social gospel? Right? Social justice gospel? Or is it the gospel that is taught and proclaimed that the apostles went testifying about as this new era unfolded in the early church? Friends, you cannot honestly read the Bible and deny the exclusivity of Christ. And that's why the reformers had as one of their solas, solus Christus, Christ alone. You guys are nasty people. Christ alone. Who do you think you are? We're people of the book. Followers of Christ. So friends, there's a regime change that is taking place. And it's Jesus who is behind that regime change. Jesus the man. Jesus the cornerstone. Jesus the savior. This is a powerful confrontational sermon given with respect but boldness to these um, religious and political leaders. As Peter has reasoned with them from the scriptures, he's identified that only Jesus has the authority to make them whole. He's exposed their blindness and their failure as Israel's leaders. He's confronted their hand in the crucifixion and rejection of Jesus of Nazareth. And he's applied to them, or say appealed to them, to see that salvation um, was only to be found in the name of Jesus Christ. So so the question now is, how will they respond? And, And I'm saying there's a predictable response going on here. You see, of course, for them, as religious political leaders, as for any Jew, responding to Jesus by faith would rock their world to the very foundation. 
It would upset their values and attitudes and beliefs. It would challenge their philosophies and ideologies and worldviews. It would confront their love for power and authority and prestige. So how would they respond to the truth that is being proclaimed before them? Peter had preached. He dropped the mic. And now they must respond. And the response is pretty predictable. Notice the response. Continued opposition. Unfortunately, their hearts were hardened to the truth of God's word. But clearly they were affected. Or they wouldn't have responded in the way that they did. So how did the religious political leaders of Israel respond to Peter's sermon? First of all, they're astonished. Look at verse 13. Now, when they had saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So they saw Peter and John's boldness. They were not accustomed to being addressed in such a way from uncommon men. This, was, this is really the statement of contempt. I mean, who are these people that could come in here and talk to us like this? I mean, they're uneducated, common men. They're not the elite, the chosen to be in the temple. But they recognize that these men had been with Jesus, and so they connect them with Jesus. And friends, if we speak respectfully, boldly, honestly, and confrontationally, we would only hope that those listening, even if they reject the content of our words, would at least recognize that that we're standing with and we're standing for Jesus, that we're not somehow behaving in such a way that would betray the truthfulness of that. But they're astonished. Secondly, they're silenced. Verse 14, but seeing the man who was healed beside, uh, standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. All right, they're astonished. They certainly don't like what's being said, but they cannot deny that the formerly lame man who now stands beside them, like a, a flashing neon light, right? You know, it's just like, eh, 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 what about this guy? Eh, you can't deny it. You just can't deny it. This guy's here. They have absolutely nothing to say. He's saying, I've been, sa- I've been healed. I've been saved. I've been made whole. There's a restaurant that my wife and I years ago went to with uh, some other uh, of our pastoral staff in a church that I was at in Michigan. It's in a place called Marshall, Michigan. It's called Schuler's Restaurant. And on the wall, they have different sayings. And one of them caught my eye as I was sitting at the table. And it says this, facts are stubborn things. You may not like what Peter and John are saying, but there's this guy standing next to him. You may not like the fact that they're saying it to you because they're uncommon men, but there's this man who's standing next to them. You can try to ignore the facts. You can try to cover them up. You can try and spin a tale to deny their reality, but facts just don't go away. And here are these religious political leaders of Israel faced with the fact that this healed 40-year-old Formula A man is before them, and they are silenced. They have nothing, absolutely nothing to say. Third, they're panicked. They don't want Peter and John and this now healed man to listen to their conversation. They, they have them leave. 
But they're panicked. They can't deny the truth of this man's healing because it had become, it says, a notable sign evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You would hope that after declaring this and seeing this man, that they would actually investigate some more or want to listen more to what Peter and John have to say or even talk to the healed man. But oh no, no, they, they're not going to do that. If, if we are to understand the healing as pointing to the resurrection, for that's what Peter and John were ultimately preaching that put them in jail. If that's what we're going to do, then the, the Sanhedrin are also at a loss as to how to deny the resurrection. And hear this. You see, it's not just that the formerly lame man is standing before them healed. What's more important is that it is Jesus of Nazareth whom they had crucified and rejected that is standing before them by means of representation. You get that? This man was pointing to the power and the authority of the resurrected Christ. So it's not just the man that's at issue. It's what they have done with Jesus of Nazareth. They knew who Jesus of Nazareth was because they had talked to him personally. They knew that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified because they'd orchestrated his trial and had him crucified. They now, or they know, I should say, that Jesus of Nazareth was buried because there was a sealed tomb protected by Roman soldiers, and now they are confronted with eyewitness claims that this Jesus of Nazareth has been raised from the dead by God. So what do you do when confronted with such insurmountable facts that you cannot deny? Well, Based on this text, you feel free to abuse your power by commanding the truth tellers to stop speaking. I mean, let's just read it here. Verse 18. So they, they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. They're not dealing with the issue. They're just trying to squelch the truth. Right? Cancel culture was alive and well in Jesus' day. Nothing new under the sun here, friends. And ultimately, we find in verses 19 to 22 that they are powerless. They are impotent, even with those demands, which we'll see here in just a moment that Peter and John refuse to follow, that they have no power to stop the spread of this news. That's how they respond. They're astonished, they're silenced, they're panicked, they're powerless. But now we have Peter and John, and what we see here in their response is faithful obedience, faithful obligation. What we have here is the famous response to an overreaching government seeking to squelch the preaching of the gospel. Let's read it again. Verse 19, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. Now, just notice, Peter and John are still being respectful here. There's nothing here about them screaming at the Sanhedrin with spittle coming from their mouth, okay? It's all respectful, but yet bold and honest and God-centered, and clear, and humble. 
No, we won't be doing what you are demanding. The picture they paint is you must judge if we are right to obey you or we're right to obey God. But know this, we will be choosing God. We won't have any other choice. They said we cannot but speak of what we've seen and what we've heard. I mean, how how can we be squelched if this is something that we have seen with our own eyes? Remember, they are witnesses of the resurrection. Jesus called them to be his witnesses. Why? Because they had seen him. But not only had they seen him, they had sat under his teaching post-resurrection. That's what we have in chapter 1. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. This is verse 21. Because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. What is clear is that the religious political leadership chose not to punish Peter and John for defying their orders, not out of principle, but for political reasons, right? All in Jerusalem were praising God for what had happened to this well-known 40-year-old lame beggar who had been healed by Christ through Peter. It wouldn't be politically prudent to punish them the people might rise up. You see what their real issue is. We want to maintain our authority, our power, our position. And of course, what's happening in this text is Peter and John are saying, you no longer have authority. You no longer have power. You may be people who are in leadership here, but there is another one who has power. There's another one who has come on the scene who has authority, and it's this one That we preach. This is this one that we proclaim. And of course, what we have here is this very familiar principle, which is reinforced in chapter 5 and verse 28 and 29. If you have your Bibles, just look there, if you would please, because it says it much more succinctly in this section. Again, this is after they've been in Jerusalem, still the same group, the Sanhedrin, come and and, uh, they've summoned them in front of them, and they say, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have been filled, or you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. So they've been told by men to stop teaching and preaching the resurrection, and they've been told by God to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the other uttermost parts of the earth. Who are they going to obey? See, the restriction here, friends, is essentially a gospel preaching restriction. And this is really important for us to understand. The general principle here is this. At every opportunity, God's people are to show respect to governments by listening to and obeying their laws unless those laws and requirements are in direct conflict with the clear teaching of the word of God. So if the government comes and says, churches must stop preaching and teaching about the resurrection, our response should be, listen, normally we'll listen to your wishes and comply. But in this case, you're asking us to do something we cannot do. So respectfully, we will continue teaching and preaching about the resurrection. Or they might come, and this is very, very likely, especially here in Alameda County, 
Churches, you must stop saying anything negative about homosexuality or the LGBTQ lifestyle. And our response should be, normally we will listen to your wishes and comply. That's what we want to do. But we cannot condone what God's word clearly condemns. What God says far outweighs what you want us to say or not to say. You're asking us to violate our consciences and sound reason. So respectfully, we will continue to speak truthfully and compassionately with God's word and from God's word for his glory. You see how this this flows out, friends. We must obey God rather than men. But the issue here is not just kind of like, let me put it this way. We must be careful that we don't force the square peg of our political ideologies, our preferences, or the spirit of our American independence into the round hole of this principle. It's not a catch-all justification for God's people to not follow a government guideline or restriction. I know, we're meddling here a little bit, right? We must be very careful in our application of this principle because the context in which it was given and the heart of the issue with Peter and John is the proclamation of the gospel. It's the teaching of God's truth, and it's the the truth of the resurrection. That's what they were seeking to squelch. Not whether I own a gun or should wear a mask or get vaccinated or send my children to the public schools or I should pay my taxes or I should drive an electric car. Now, you can go to other passages of Scripture and kind of work your way through those issues. Those are important issues. Don't get me wrong. But we got to be careful not to go to a text like this and somehow wrench it out of its context and say, see, we're going to obey God rather than men. Well, what would God actually say about what you are seeking to do or not do? We're so quick to throw out Scripture out of its context when the real issue here is a gospel issue. And I just want us to think, friends, this is important. This is, this is the kind of stuff that we need to be doing. We can't just be sheep being led, might want to say, by Christian leaders who are also in, you know, intertwined with, with political ideology. We must be first and foremost God's people committed to God's gospel and committed to Jesus Christ and living for his glory. If that somehow meets and measures some kind of political ideology or direction, then so be it. But we're Christians first. So friends, just marinate on that a little bit. And just bringing things now to a close. I'd like to take our closing minutes here to probe our hearts in three areas. First of all, our conversion. The layman in this passage is screaming at us that only Jesus has the power and authority to make you whole, to bring about your salvation. And the drumbeat of the gospel throughout the scriptures is that man is dead in his trespasses and sin. He is hopeless. He is helpless. But God, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, brings about new life. Please hear this. The gospel is not a sticker you place on the luggage of your life's journey. You don't just add Jesus to your life. No, when you come face to face with Jesus Christ in conversion, a change 
happens that is so radical that it rocks your life and the foundations of your world. It's not just like, well, I'm still doing the same things, but now I have Jesus. No, if you have Jesus, you're not doing the same things. Because you're thinking about them differently. You have a new master. You have a new guide. You have the Holy Spirit living in you. And he is working through your heart to bring about a change that will bring glory to the Father. So everything changes. Your understanding of God, your passions, your values, your relationships, your integrity, your view of the world, your understanding of your sinful behavior. True converts are spiritually walking and leaping and praising God. Is that a picture of you? Secondly, I think we want to probe a little bit about our discipleship. Is Jesus Christ your cornerstone? For the true disciple and Christian living to take place in uh, in, in Jesus, or sorry, in, for true discipleship and Christian living to take place in your life, Jesus must be your cornerstone. He must be your foundation. That's why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 11, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He must drive how you view and approach life. He must frame your thoughts and your decisions. He must uh, be the one who is fashioning and shaping wisdom and counsel when you're facing certain struggles and trials in your life. And we must learn, friends, to fight against the unbiblical biblical but popular ideologies, the sinful comforts of this world, and the false teaching that draws us away from Jesus being our cornerstone. And to borrow from Jesus himself, we must look to live our lives upon the rock of Jesus Christ rather than on the sands of man's thinking. And then finally, I want to probe a little bit into our witness. What we've learned from this text, among a number of things, is that God calls us, first of all, to the same readiness to speak with respect and boldness and clarity no matter who the audience is, co-workers, neighbors, political leaders that you might come across, people who are activists and who are angry, who are opposed to Christianity, and nowhere, no matter where God places us. Now, friends, obviously there needs to be wisdom in how we speak, where we speak, but are we ready? Secondly, God calls us to the same resolve. We cannot but speak. Is that true about you? I think many of us, the statement would be, we cannot speak. But what Peter and John say is we cannot but speak. I mean, it's just natural for us to bring Christ into a conversation that we're having with someone because he's the one that drives what we think and behave and all that stuff. He's just the center of our lives. What will it take to silence you? Do we have a ready resolve to open our mouths and speak for Christ? Third, God calls us to the same reliance. You say, okay, I get this, because the reliance here was 
upon the Holy Spirit. And I would just encourage you, if you're ready to give an answer of the hope that you have, yes, work on it. I mean, you know, study God's word and come up with with passages of scripture that will help you do that. But at the same time, you have an opportunity that maybe you weren't prepared for. And it's like, okay, I got to say something here. Just in that moment, that split second, it's just like, Lord, I need the help of the Holy Spirit now. I'm desperate. (laughs) You ever been there? Sometimes I'm up here facing you, and I'm there. And in my heart, I'm just saying, Lord, I, I need the Holy Spirit here to do his work through me. And so we lean, we rely on his power to accomplish what he wants to accomplish in us, to give us courage, to give us conviction, to give us clarity. Remember, Peter had just a few weeks before denied Christ three times. And now he stands before the most powerful group of religious and political men in Israel. And he testifies to what he has seen and heard, and he does so in the power of the Holy Spirit. This morning we took some time before we went into the sermon to be introduced to the great Scottish reformer John Knox and At his burial, standing over his grave, one of his opponents was heard saying, here lies a man who neither flattered nor feared any flesh. Now, friends, I have a long way to go before I'm that guy. But I aspire to that kind of legacy. And maybe our aspirations are more for earthly things. Maybe we prefer to have a monument raised in our honor. Or maybe for God's glory, our memory is going to be buried under a parking lot with a painted sign 23. It is only Jesus who has the authority to bring about your salvation. He has the right, he has the power, he has the authority. Trust him as you go out and you proclaim what you know, what you've seen, and what you've heard for his glory. Lord, help us today. Um, We are weak people. We might talk a good talk at times, but Lord, these are issues that we wrestle with in our heart. How could we even come close to doing what Peter and John are doing here? And yet they have been commissioned with the authority of Jesus. And Lord, as your children, we are all commissioned with the authority of Christ to go out and to spread the gospel of good news. And Lord, to be bold and respectful, but Lord, relying on the power of the Holy Spirit to to come up with the right words for the particular audience that we have before us. Sometimes, Lord, we, we might testify in a way that's just more cookie cutter, but Lord, help us to trust that you are at work, even in our weakness, even in our struggles. And so, Lord, may we 
give our attention to Jesus Christ and Him alone and realize that we are to carry out ministry in His name alone and for His glory. Give us strength, Lord, to do that in your precious name. Amen.